Chapter One of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick Thomas Jane. Chapter One Torpedoed at Sea. "'Well, I'll lay anybody three to one that we don't see any French torpedo-boats between here and Plymouth.' "'No thanks, Purser. I'm not keen enough on winning that bet to take you on. Added to which, if we do come across any, there'll be no one left for you to hand the dollars over to.' <laughs> "'By Jove, Gray, you are a croaker, and no mistake,' laughed the commander. "'It's easy to see that you've been associating too much with the Vernon fellows "'and getting inoculated with the cult of the omnipotent torpedo.' "'Well, anyway, sir, I'd rather be going into action against a big fleet of battleships, "'and that's no great catch in an old tub like this, is it?' "'None of us would ever come out of it, I guess, except maybe the doctors and the fellows below. "'However, I'm after a sherry and bitters at present.' "'Who's in for a swindle?' Next moment the three of them were deep in the mysteries of poker dice. Regardless of war and its inevitable consequences, the future would bring quite enough worry of that sort. There was no need to fill the present with forebodings of evil. I give this bit of conversation because it has run in my head ever since, in the way that trivial things like this will run. Whenever my thoughts go back to those stirring days— the first picture in my mind is ever this unimportant little incident. I can still see them bending over the white tablecloth, still hear the loud laugh of the commander, as the paymaster, throwing with a peculiar turn of the hand that he swore by, failed to secure more than a single pair against the full hands of the others. Alas, that it should be but a memory of the dead, a memory of men going calmly to their dooms, knowing as they went that no other fate could be in store for them. For this was the day on which England went to war. The war, as you doubtless remember, broke out quite suddenly and unexpectedly just after the manoeuvres in 1890-something. As to say how it came about that we were embroiled with France and Russia, I can't exactly say. Politics are not in a sailor's line— all I know about it is that when our fleet put into Milford Haven at the end of the manoeuvres, instead of our being inspected and sent home to pay off, in the usual fashion, we were kept hanging about doing nothing in Dale Harbour, and all leave was stopped. This stoppage of leave troubled us a good deal more than the war scare, which nobody expected to come to anything. War scares were common in those days, so we stuck on board— cursing and grumbling at our ill-luck, till one fateful afternoon came telegrams, saying that war was declared. The spell of peace was ended at last. The long-expected thundercloud had burst in all its violence. All our ships were complete with coal, but there were a thousand and one other things to be seen to, letters to be written to those who might never hear from us again, fresh provisions to be got in things to be made snug for sea, and innumerable little odds and ends. Twas a busy day for everybody. I was at this period an acting sub in the Nelson, a rather useless old packet, 
and the lame duck of our squadron. Having done a vernon course and got a one, I should by rights have been in a torpedo boat, but the Nelson skipper, an old shipmate of mine, had offered me a berth as signal matey in her, and a jolly comfortable billet it was, far preferable to roughing things in a torpedo boat, living on sardines and potted meat. The bugle went for dinner, and we all trooped into the wardroom as usual. We had no gunroom mess in the Nelson, she being a mobilized ship. The meal was a hurried one, but that was more because we were to put to sea at one bell than because we were so soon to face the unknown with its terrible possibilities. Conversation was naturally all about the war and its prospects, and the probability of our being turned over to some more efficient ship when we got to Portsmouth. "'It's quite on the cards,' said the commander, "'that the dunderheads at the A will look up this ship and, seeing her down as a first-class armoured cruiser, send her off to chase some twenty-knot Frenchmen.' And no one was bold enough to deny his words. The Admiralty could never get it out of their heads in those days that a ship grows old as quickly as a racehorse does. "'I hope to God this war business gets peaceably settled before we have a fight,' said Lieutenant Blake, "'for there's never a fellow will come out of it alive. It's just do your duty and die.' Some of the mess were inclined to rally the pessimistic Blake on his chicken-heartedness, but our old number one called across the table to him. "'All right, my boy, you're down for a V.C.' "'All you chaps who croak in that fashion go and cut a dash later on.' "'Well, I hope I'll do it better than I did in number ninety-two,' replied Blake with a laugh. Number ninety-two torpedo-boat, commanded by Blake, had badly damaged herself a few days before, through colliding with another boat off the haven, and while she was lying useless in harbour, Blake had been temporarily sent to us, we being a lieutenant short in the Nelson. There was a good laugh at Blake's joke against himself, and after that we got merrier. Indeed, by the time we'd drunk the Queen, we were all as chirpy as the commander was before dinner. There's nothing like a good meal for pulling a fellow together. There is so much about Blake in this story, that some sort of description of him should be forthcoming though I'm a bad hand at that kind of thing. Clean-shaved, save for the slight service whiskers he affected, of medium height, and rather gaunt. There was little in his outward appearance to distinguish him from other non-bearded officers of his rank. The sea service sets its indelible mark upon all its votaries, and whatever the original features of the boy, when he grows to manhood, his arduous duties mould his expression into one universal type. Responsibility stamps its seal on the mouth and eyes of every naval officer, making it patent to the world that he is a man of action. For the rest Blake, like all executive officers, was devoted heart and soul to his profession. Indeed, he went so far that it even became a proverb in the wardroom. Looking on politicians of both parties as knaves alike, contemptuous of civilian control of the fleet, callous to all amusements, and interested in nothing save in so far as it touched his profession, he was a man marked out to rise and succeed from the first. Blake, said an old admiral of his, 
is the sort of fellow to attack a fleet of battleships with a second-class cruiser, and to manage to come out top. And this, whatever doleful prognostications he might make, was about the tally we all took of him. When I got on deck again, it was to find that the catchers and cruisers had already gone out of harbour, and before long we followed suit. I suppose our admiral did not care to risk a torpedo attack in a place like Dale Harbour, where there were no boom defences, and which the manoeuvres had shown to be all too open to torpedo attack, so intended to assume the vigorous offensive. Our fleet consisted of the battleships Majestic, Royal Sovereign, Thunderer, Resolution, our ship Nelson, which was classed as an armor-belted cruiser, the belted cruisers Immortalité and Narcissus, first- and second-class cruisers Blenheim, Iphigenia, Tribune, Latona, and the third-class cruiser Bellona. We had besides some four or five catchers, whose names I cannot now remember, but one of them was the Halcyon, which had only returned that morning from a scouting expedition. She had lain quite near us on her return, and we had speculated much on some holes in her bow that looked uncommonly like shot-holes. Her skipper had been a very long time on board the flagship, whither he had been called after having begun a semaphore about the enemy's torpedo-boats. I did not hear till later what had actually happened. Indeed, I am never quite clear about it. Since the matter was kept as quiet as possible, but as far as I can gather— the Halcyon, scouting off the haven the night before, had almost run into a couple of French torpedo-boats, which did not notice her at first, the night being very thick. These boats, which were slowly steaming towards Milford with tubes trained to beam, turned tail and made away at full speed, as soon as ever they sighted the Halcyon. But there being a tidy bit of sea on, the catcher was easily able to overhaul them. No two accounts agree as to what happened next, save that the boats went down with all on board, and as the Halcyon was lost herself the very next night, it will never be known exactly how it all came about. But it seems probable that the Halcyon skipper destroyed the boats in order to put it out of their power to do any mischief they might have been intent on doing so soon as war should be declared. I had often heard this sort of action advocated as an absolutely necessary course by torpedo-men, who knew pretty well what they were talking about, and there was little doubt that in such a course was wisdom, and it probably saved a good many lives. Nevertheless, I doubt not, but that there'd have been a devil of a rumpus had it leaked out at the time. Whatever he heard from the Halcyon, the Admiral kept his own counsel— and we went out to sea in single column of line ahead. All lights were, of course, carefully concealed, and we kept station quite six cables apart, the cruisers and catchers scouting ahead, and outside of us, our course lying towards the Sillies. As you may guess, there was little inclination to turn in on this, the first night of the war, and though I had to keep the morning watch, I went up on the quarter-deck, where our marine captain and several other fellows intended going to sleep under the quick-firing guns, so as to be on the spot if any attack took place. All the guns were cast loose and loaded, 
while boxes of ammunition stood about the decks in readiness for immediate use, should they be required. The torpedo nets were not regularly out, as that would have prevented our steaming at anything like a respectable rate, but they were triced up on the booms, ready to lower at very short notice. All round the bulwarks and in the fighting tops were men on the lookout, and the captain and commander were both on the bridge all the night, searching the horizon for hostile vessels, but up to two o'clock nothing had been sighted. The night was a thick one, and the officer of the watch several times lost sight of the royal quid, which was our next ahead. Worked as the Nelson was from the after-bridge, it was hard enough to keep station at night even when position lights were used. Now, without even a stern light for guidance, the difficulty was trebled. It must have been about six bells in the middle watch, that a great cloud passed over the vaporish moon, deepening the prevailing gloom. Through the clouds peeped a solitary star, a sickly-looking planet well-nigh overhead, and as I gazed up at it the power of the situation fell upon me. It became the frowning eye of an evil fate, luring and leading to trouble to come. I watched and shivered. A presentiment of disaster stole upon me. For a while I fought against it, but without much success. Feelings of this sort come of their own volition, and man is powerless to drive them away. And so the night wore on. After a bit, I went below to try and get a drink of something, for I was smoke-dried as a lime-kiln, and also badly needed something to pull me together. As I made my way to the wardroom along the lower deck, half dazed by the sudden change from darkness to light, my nerves were all ajarred by a cry on deck, "'Torpedo boat coming up astern!' Bang! went one of the after-quick-firing guns, then came shot after shot in rapid succession, while between the firing came the sound of the boatswain's whistles, as the watch was called to man an armed ship. I was borne on deck amid a crowd of half-awake bluejackets, who had been sleeping under arms in the main deck. It was dark as pitch, but in the flashes of the firing I could just make out our sides, lined with men firing wildly in every direction. Round the hatchways were crowds of bluejackets and marines, tumbling over the gear and ropes, cursing, swearing, and yelling, their loaded rifles going off every now and again in their excitement. Our ship's company was largely made up of boys from the Baskawan and Naval Reserve men, and most of these were quite overcome with panic. I rushed on to the afterbridge, remaining there some ten minutes while this pandemonium continued. Then, the officers having by free use of their swords restored some sort of order, the firing was stopped, and an unnatural silence reigned. The skipper, concluding that it had been a false alarm, called the men aft and gave them his mind in no very gentle terms. Then, the rest of the fleet having disappeared altogether, he ordered the torpedo-nets to be got out, having decided to lie to till daylight. While this job was being seen to, I overheard the purser, who, with most of the non-executive officers, was standing by the chart-house, again offer his bet about torpedo-boats. In fact, they were all laughing about the late scene. The searchlights were now burning brightly, dancing over the water, but they revealed nothing save crested billows. 
till a chance beam fell on a small vessel to starboard, apparently coming bows on towards us, and firing as she came. Every gun on our starboard side was discharged at her before any orders could be given, and some of the six-pounders must have made good shooting, for we saw her lurch heavily over on one side, and begin to settle down, whereat our men cheered lustily and blazed away with renewed energy. It was but a momentary glimpse, for the port-bow guns now began to fire, while a blue light burned from somewhere forward increased the smoke and blur around us. For one instant we saw a low black hole, belching sparks and flame from a red-hot funnel. The next, a thunderstorm seemed to burst about us. Everyone was thrown violently to the deck. Guns, boats, and torpedo booms were flung in all directions, while from above a mighty waterspout descending completely wrecked the afterbridge, washing everything into the starboard scuppers. The ship gave one awful trembling heave, and then fell back with a tremendous list to port. As I extricated myself from the wreckage, I saw Blake rush to a three-pounder Hotchkiss and plump a shot into the torpedo-boat, which had now come up quite close and opened fire on us with her machine-guns. This, so far as I know, was the only shot discharged after the explosion. All order and discipline were at once lost, and a general sauve-qui-peur seemed order of the day. Our mobilized crew had no cohesion, no trust in each other. The reserve men, unused to any discipline, became more dangerous to their fellows than the foe was. Most of the officers had disappeared. The wave of the torpedo explosion had washed them away. And, to add to the confusion, a crowd of stokers, panic-stricken by the horrible scenes in the engine-room, against which the torpedo had burst, came rushing madly up from below. "'Come along with me, Bovary!' cried Blake, who ran past me at that moment. "'Quick! There is not a moment to lose if we are to do anything at all!' I started to follow him, forcing my way through the press, but I had not gone very far before something hit me a tremendous whack on the head, and I fell half-dazed against the ruins of the chart-house, to lie there helplessly watching Blake, who seemed to be the only executive officer left trying to get some sort of order.' Men were jumping overboard in dozens. Boats were being lowered that must have capsized as soon as they touched the water, so overcrowded were they, while all the time came the ping-ping of bullets from the torpedo-boat tearing through wherever the men were thickest. My servant, plucky, good-hearted fellow that he was, came up to me with a life-belt, and somehow got me into it. Scarcely had he done so when there came another rush— black heaving water bearing all before it. Then, afar off, as it now seemed, I saw the old Nelson's bows sliding rapidly under water, a searchlight still burning, shooting its ray up towards the lowering sky above till it met that solitary evil star, which still gazed calmly down upon the strife and turmoil below. The cold water revived me, and I struck out for the scene of the wreck as well as I was able, hoping against hope that either one of our boats might have survived, or that the enemy might pick me up. As it chanced, I came across two boats tossing upside down in the violently agitated water, and these were crowded with men clinging to them. I hung on with the rest, glad indeed to have some companions in misfortune, 
and my gladness was increased when from the other boat I heard the voice of Blake bidding the men be of good cheer. I swam over to this boat and got a place beside him. Before we could say anything, however, we spotted the Torpilleur de Haute-Mer steaming slowly towards us. I was about to sing out to them when Blake sternly ordered everyone to be silent. "'I'm going to capture her,' he said. Under any other circumstances I think I should have laughed. But hanging by your eyelids to a capsized whaler is no place for merriment, so I just made ready to obey any orders he might give. "'When I give the word, board her,' said Blake in a whisper, and the order was passed to those clinging to the gig. Soon the torpedo-boat was close upon us, and an officer on board called out to us in English to ask whether we surrendered. "'No!' shouted Blake. "'Follow me! Everybody who can swim!' And he plunged into the water on what seemed to me the maddest forlorn hope that was ever entered upon. Yet, as it chanced, in its very madness lay our hope of success. For a minute, a fatal minute to them, the Frenchmen simply stood still and stared at us. Then, realizing that the attack was in serious earnest, they began to fire at us with rifles, while their captain tried to make the boat steam away. But the Nelson's fire had not entirely missed her, and a shot somewhere near the engines had filled one compartment and reduced her speed to a crawl. Before they could do anything, the majority of us were upon them, clambering over her sides. We did not, of course, do this without loss. Their skipper bowled over several of our men with his revolver. Others were hurled back into the sea. But the space was too limited for the enemy to do much. A good twenty of us were quickly on the deck, and the nine or ten Frenchmen there had a very short shift. In less time than it takes to write, the boat was in our possession, and her crew prisoners. Blake went to the helm and having sent some of our fellows down to keep the French stokers hard at it, steered for the spot where the Nelson had gone down, for we had drifted some way from there in the scuffle, and here we were fortunate enough to rescue about a dozen more men who still clung to bits of wreckage. Then we turned towards Milford, the white lighthouse on St. Anne's Head being just visible in the growing dawn. On the way Blake and I exchanged experiences about the night's fighting, and I asked him how he came to hit on the wild idea that had been our salvation. Well, said he, as soon as I knew the Nelson was done for, I ran to a QF gun and put a shot into the torpedo boat's engines. Then I knew she wouldn't be able to get far away, and I had doubts as to how many of our boats would live when the ship went under. Then I picked out as many Marines and regular bluejackets as I could lay hands on, and just before the end we got into the water over the port side. Of course we all went down with the ship, but most of us came up again. The rest, you know. It's better than a French prison or Davy Jones's locker. Then we fell to musing over those we should never see again. Brother officers sent to their last account with hardly a moment's warning. Such thoughts will come, and make one take umbrage at that hollow mockery, the fortunes of war. Blake, even then, seemed a man well saved to the country. But as for me, of what account was I, that I alone should be spared of the many so much more needed? Plunged in these sad reflections, I paid little heed to what went on around me, 
and was quite startled to look up and see Blake waving a white flag. Following the direction of his gaze, I saw a cruiser coming up fast, while astern of her was the rest of our fleet, the majestic with the strange cruiser in tow, and the old thunderer with her nose under water, towed by the resolution. We and the captured torpedo-boat were soon in tow also, and in this fashion reached Dale Harbour, and were able to get some tally of the previous night's work. The Majestic had captured the French cruiser Isny, and sunk another, with little or no loss to herself. But on the other hand, of our side, the Nelson was sunk, the Thunderer disabled, the Iphigenia, Latona, Halcyon, and Gleaner missing. There was only too good reason to fear that the small ship sunk by the Nelson was the Halcyon, and the arrival of the missing Iphigenia, with some of this catcher's sailors whom she had picked up, put this beyond doubt. It was a particularly unpleasant reflection, but it is hard to see how it could have been avoided, since we employed searchlights to look for the enemy, instead of using them merely to keep hostile craft under observation, after having been found by the naked eye. Which, I take it, is their proper use. The men simply blazed at everything they saw caught in the searchlight's beam. We found that Dale Harbour had been full of torpedo-boats the night before, and one of them having penetrated up the haven as far as Old Milford, had torpedoed the coal-pier, presumably taking it for an ironclad in the darkness. Some colliers had also been sunk, and Blake's own boat was likewise missing. So, altogether, it was perhaps just as well that we put to sea when we did. End of chapter 1